Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I'm Russell Tovey. And I'm Robert Diamond. And this is Talk Art. Welcome to Talk Art. How are you today, Rob, on this very special Talk Art Live episode? Today, I am feeling like a global citizen, and that is because we have the great honour and privilege to meet the most legendary artist, Ai Weiwei. And um, sadly, you are going to be in New York, which makes you a global citizen too. What, what are you doing in New York? You're filming something top secret, aren't I'm filming you? something top secret, but I wish I was there at the Kite Festival, but you are going to be wonderful and I can't wait. But yes, this this artist that we're meeting is someone, someone that we've wanted on the podcast for... Well, since the beginning, really. They're an absolute icon. And actually, you've met them before, haven't you? Because you gave him an award oh, yeah. at the GQ Heroes event or one yeah, of those big were, events. That's right, the GQ Awards. Oh, no, they... it was Men of the Year, wasn't it? GQ Men of the Year Awards. That's right. Yeah. Well, good memory. And there's a really cool photo of you two together. So even though you can't be there today, Ai Weiwei knows that you love him. We, we both know that we love each other. Um, you yeah, know, I presented him Artist of the Year Award. I did. Well done, Rob. I forgot that. When was that? Like, it was only a year ago or something. No, so, it was probably I, about four years ago. Ai Weiwei is obviously a name that everyone will know. He's an artist and great thinker, and he moves between modes of production and investigation, subject to the direction and outcome of his research, whether into things like the Chinese earthquake from 2008, or even to the worldwide plight of refugees and forced migrants. And you can think of really iconoclastic early positions in regards to authority and history. He's an incredibly political artist, but really at the heart of it, wants to help other humans and other people have their their freedom of speech and freedom. And I have so much respect for the decades of work and investigation yeah. and activism that yeah. he has provided us all. Also, you might not even realise that you've seen an Ai Weiwei work, but I think one of his most seminal pieces was uh, a show which was at the Tate Modern in the Turbine Hall, and it was Sunflower Seeds in 2010, where he filled the Turbine Hall with millions and millions of individually handcrafted porcelain sunflower seeds. And it had like a volume of nearly 10 cubic metres. It weighed about 10 tonnes. And you could walk through it, and you're walking through this space, and it was an incredible, immersive like game-changing exhibition. And those um, sunflower seeds, each one was like handmade. And there's this idea within his work of craftsmanship and kind of the handmade alongside very closely conceptual creativity. And I think the way that he's able to bring together ideas of economic, you know, political 
alongside natural and social forces. It's just extraordinary. Exactly. And so you are recording this at uh, the Kite Festival, which is the first of its kind festival. It delivers a pioneering lineup of ideas, events and music, and it embraces the current zeitgeist. And what could be more embracing of the current zeitgeist than the artist that we would like to welcome to Talk Art? I way way. Thank you. So where have you come from today? You've been staying in Oxford, is that right? I arrived here yesterday uh, from Cambridge. My Great. son studies in Cambridge. So Yes. And you recently moved to Cambridge in, in recent years, but you've also been spending a lot of time in Portugal. Um, yes, I'm traveling between Portugal, uh, Cambridge and Berlin. My studio is in Berlin. Yeah. And my son studies in Cambridge. I'm, I'm building a new studio in Portugal. So Amazing. And what was it about Portugal that led you there because a member of the audience just came up to me and he spent a lot of time in Portugal and he said he saw your amazing retrospective recently which actually I know included craft elements from the history of Portugal that you um, made into new works alongside your older works. Well Portugal is a very sunny place you have a 300 sunny days a year it's just like this the temperature always like this so sometimes you get bored because 300 days think about you know <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you, you can easily get burned. But uh, Portugal is interesting. It's, uh, it was the first country to take the boat come to China in the 15th century or so. And uh, then they take a long nap, and uh, still they haven't wake up, you know. <laughs> <laughs> they escaped the Industrial Revolution. Can you, can you believe it? They, they also escaped the so-called Renaissance or Enlightenment. So it's really a, a town uh, belongs to Europe, but uh, very slow, and uh, people are nice, food are good, and uh, many things are nice there. And can you talk about a bit of the new work that you made for that show, and the relationship to craft from you know, Portuguese history? Because I know craft is something that um, you look at a lot in your work. Uh, yeah, I, I, I always talk about... Uh, traditions as a contemporary artist, but I'm more fascinated by what happened before, you know, the thousands and thousands of years of craftsmanship in relating to carpentry, porcelain, in every direction, or glass making. So it's just uh, fascinating uh, to learn those. And uh, of course, uh, Portugal's porcelain can never match the fineness of the Chinese porcelain, but uh, still, they have their own quality. They, they are, yeah, you don't, it's, porcelain is not just about the fineness, but also a lot of expressions, color, and uh, yeah, glaze, it's nice there. And the first time I really have a really strong memory of your work was in Tate um, Modern with the sunflower seeds. And it was 100 million sunflower seeds that you, you helped to create. And um, that was also like looking at these kind of craft um, element because each tiny sunflower seed, they actually looked real, didn't they? Like some people even wanted to pick them up and put them in their mouth, I heard. Um, but they were obviously made out of porcelain and made in, um, in China. And can you talk a bit about that, that body of work? Because it was such a significant, really strong memory for me. Well, yeah, uh, before 2010, Tate asked me to do a show on 2012, which is the year for the Olympics in London. 
So I, I want to take in you know, such huge space, this, this huge volume. So immediately I realized I can never do something to try to, to match that kind of volume. So I mean, China, I'm still, everything I do has to be shaped and you know, it's difficult to, to, to do anything large with that kind of ambition. Um, so I, I thought maybe I'd do something very small. And uh, that, and that idea, I said, uh, you know, we just create some sunflower seeds. So it take about uh, two years, 1,600 women, craft ladies, they, they all porcelain makers. So like daily, they would bring uh, those uh, mold back to paint on it. So every of them are painted by different ladies. And uh, they all look the same, but none of them matches another. It's all different, it's all handmade. So it takes about two years. I, we had about a uh, hundred, little bit over a hundred million of them. Just barely cover the whole, whole site, so. And I heard the Tate actually ended up buying, I think something like 8,000 or, or, or? Yeah, or they, they bought a small portion as a memory, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I think, uh, the people in London at uh, the first three days was uh, people, the idea is people can walk on it, you know. If you walk on it, it's more like on the beach, so you can hear the sound, you can, you know, it crashes and... Uh, but uh, the dust is poisoning because, uh, you know, have lead in there. So they stopped people to walk on it, but how lucky I am because uh, already over one ton a mason, and the people love it. They just take it, and uh, I wouldn't mind. I have a hundred million, so they took about one million pieces. <laughs> and uh, yeah, everybody now they're showing me. You know, this is from my boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sure. And hopefully they, <laughs> hopefully they didn't end up on eBay or something. Cause oh yeah, many many end oh, up they did. on eBay. Still, <laughs> if you open eBay, you can buy. It's not expensive. And, uh, yeah, it's funny, you know, New York Times have an article, and the last sentence they says, I know it's not good to take the artworks, but I would do it. <laughs> so. Um, when I think of your work, it's often very, uh, almost monumental works in the sense that they're huge installations. And the show at the Royal Academy recently where, where you had like um, the work called Straight, which has all the, the metal poles out of buildings from the Chinese earthquake. And that work, to me, sort of referenced like the history of a conceptual art and kind of like a very minimal kind of precise artwork. But at the same time has this rich... Um, human story from the earthquake of children dying due to the nature of the way the buildings had been built and I was really fascinated in, in how you go from an idea like, like having the idea of these, these metal poles to the realisation of such a heavy work, you know, like you were talking earlier about shipping, but also just in a collaboration sense, all the amount of people who must have to be involved. Is it overwhelming? Like, what, what is your kind of creative process? Well, it's... I would never call it a creative uh, 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 say practice or... I, I'm a human being. I'm deeply involved in this political situation, humans uh, struggle, joys or sorrows. And uh, I always want to be involved. 
and uh, I never think about the art when I been involved. So I, so when Sichuan had earthquake, then I realized it's about five thousand students disappeared, and the government refused to examine what happens to this government built buildings, which the next building residential building is still standing, hospital still standing, only school collapse. So. You know, obviously, it's a mishandling of construction, you know, uh, uh, how do you say, corruptions, because the government would uh, assign this to one person, which can be relatives, then the one gave to another person, so a level going down, then the, the one actually doing the job has no money, they only can build a very bad buildings. Of course, they, they can never imagine there will be an earthquake, so. 5,335 students disappeared in, in a few seconds. So I keep asking these questions and uh, I, you know, I feel powerless. I was a block writer, but when you have tragedies like this, I lost my language, I cannot find vocabularies. So I went to visit the site, I see how bad those, you know, you have to stand on the gravels, you know, those ruins, you understand those bodies under there. When I remember the wind, basically I think it passes through me and I feel I become nobody because the, the, the tragic is too, too strong, the death is in the air. So it takes years of argument, and uh, of course I, I start to do so-called citizen investigation to organize people online to check on those students' name and birthday, visit you know, all the villages, families, knock on their door to say, you know, we, we would like to collect those names. And I post those names on my blog every day. It could be one, could be a dozen. And uh, so this is, during this year, everybody's watching in China, you know, because they never see anybody do something like this. And they, also the government doesn't know how to stop it because this is a natural earthquake. We don't have a political agenda. It only says, refuse to forget and respect the life. So those sound doesn't sound very uh, political, but actually both are very political, I should say. And uh, finally, I got myself into all kinds of trouble. And uh, you know, my team has been arrested uh, over 40 times. Police would just delete our findings and uh, let us go, and uh, maybe sometimes a little bit violent. But uh, still, we managed to find all the names. And uh, yeah, that's the first activity put in my work related to social media and uh, citizens' action. And I never think about art till very late. I think, how do I use the existing materials and language to, to build some works? And uh, did the first work to use 9,000 students' backpack, construct one sentence, which is mom of one little girl. She says, she write to me, she said, my daughter happily lived in this world for seven years. So I used that line to cover the, 
Munich Haus der Kunst, Munich's uh, uh, museum facade with 9,000 uh, students' backpacks. Then also I started collecting those uh, uh, rebars from ruins. They're all, you know, all kind of strange shape, tasted. But uh, has to be secretly because uh, uh, people know I, I always can do something with those things. So they are very cautious. But finally we managed to collect about 150 tons of uh, rebars from ruins, uh, mainly from one high school. Then I don't know what to do with it. You know, it's the most uh, organic uh, form, and uh, you know, it's very rebar. It's very hard to do. So that take a while. I think I should just uh, straight it up. You know, so we hired uh, workers just every day bending on the rebars. Take about two hundred shots to make a rebar really, really straight, just like come out from a factory. And yeah, so we come out of the work, uh, we, we, we finished all 150 tons of rebars. Of course, then you have to find location to show it. But to show it or not show it doesn't matter. You know, I, it's always for myself because I was frustrated. And uh, I think I need a language to, to release my anger and my, my understanding of aesthetics, moral, or, or even philosophical understanding. So. so a work doesn't actually need to be realized. It's like having the idea still helps you to cope with these kind of things. Yeah, I, I'm a very selfish person. I always need to make myself happy or to release my anger or to express my feeling. And that's always come back to that. Um, one of the things that Russell and I in Talk Up have really believed in is the idea that art um, is one of the most powerful um, things in the world, really, like a force, and that it really can actually change lives in a, in a realistic way. And some people I've interviewed in the past have said, no, that's not possible. Art isn't that. Art can't change the world. But I've always felt like, if you think about remembering that piece with the backpacks um, in Germany that you put on the outside of the building... Um, you know, for people interacting with that, they sort of look at the backpacks, they start to explore what the stories are behind the meaning of the work, and then that is changing their hearts and minds. What is your feeling about the power of art, and, and does it actually have, have a way to, like, really change the world? I, I don't think the art can change the world. I don't even think anything can change the world. And uh, the world changes itself, and, uh, you know, and uh, because I... But art doesn't change me, and uh, you know I'm a, I'm a, I practice art, and uh, also I often hear young people come to me to say, uh, I believe what you're doing, and uh, you know, so it gives some kind of illusions, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think for me, I, I saw a Henry Moore sculpture the other day, and I never really thought about Henry Who Moore. Who is Henry Moore? <laughs> He's a. <laughs> The British sculptor. I, um, I saw a show of his and I, I was looking at the work and I just thought there's so much effort put into the sculpture that it, it sort of gave 
sense of the world to me somehow. And I don't even really like his work that much. I'd never thought about it that much. But for me, I'd looked at like Frida Kahlo and lots of kind of women artists, Louise Bourgeois, Tracy M and different people like that. And I was quite struck by this idea that like a sculpture can bring meaning, that like somehow there is a reason to be here. And I think through your work, I've realized that that meaning is helping other people and maybe trying to just improve the world, even if it's your own community or the town you're living in. So I don't know. So that, I think that's the reason I feel like art can have an impact. I think that that's a wrong uh, concept. <laughs> uh, if I try to help other people, certainly I'm, I'm such a failure. You know, I, you know, I did works in relate to all kinds of injustice and also a lot of works relate to refugees, you know, relate to all kinds of problems. But I only can see those problems getting bigger and stronger, and I become uh, like uh, powerless, more powerless. So it's it's a struggle. It's really you're trying to survive yourself. It's not really. Uh, I don't have this kind of utopian idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I've heard you describe yourself as a refugee when you were a child because your father. Um, was like sent away and your whole childhood was a kind of refugee experience. Is, is that one of the reasons that, that, that you felt like you wanted to make work about the global refugee crisis? It's last, ask, like asking a cat why he's a cat. You know, it's... Uh, yes, that's all the reason. Okay. <laughs> um, and more recently, you've been making films a lot, a lot more. And I saw uh, Coronation and um, Cockroach. Can you speak a bit about why you chose the medium of film um, to document those, those moments in time? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm a person with curiosity and I'm eager to learn. And I realized since the 80s I was in New York, I realized my life was so desperate I couldn't even pay next month's um, rent. But I also realize my life means more than I, I can understand. So I start to use cameras to record whatever happens, you know, because I found no other sense to do. And, uh, but many years later, of course, if I look at those New York photos, I, re I realize, yes, there's so many things I never really paid attention. And uh, photos, it's not reality. Photo is... Uh, another layer of reality. Um, if we don't have photos, we don't recognize those things. So if you look at old photos from different generations, you still can find out very different things in there. Not necessarily the photographer himself uh, uh, had that kind of understanding. So I'm interested in documentary things to document, and uh, that's why I did many documentary films. And, uh, yeah, basically, it's to leave a record for the history, you know, because our understanding is quite uh, superficial, and, uh, but we need to document what, you know, we, we witnessed, but that's not enough. We need to document it. And for Coronation, um, it's looking at, um, it's do documenting the COVID um, first pandemic in, in Wuhan. And can you speak a bit how you made that? Because you made it from the UK, so you were here, but you managed to edit direct and connect to a group of people who were filming directly in China themselves. And I was interested as well about how that impacts them, you know, once the film comes out um, within, within the Chinese kind of political system. 
Well, uh, 2003, uh, that's the first pandemic called uh, SARS. It uh, happens in China, and at that time I started making documentary. Because I, through documentary, you have to make a lot of argument. You have to always ask, you know, what is the difference between the government's uh, information and what is the actual, what is the actual happening, what, what's going on. And uh, so I had a practice in 2003. So by 2020, uh, the pandemic comes, I realize this is not a, a simple matter. You know, it's happened in Wuhan. They have a very big uh, biological lab, probably the most advanced lab in the world. And it uh, happened just uh, maybe two kilometers away. They, they, they said it's from a, a wet market. You know, the market is selling uh, meat or fish. I thought about it. I said, uh, immediately I realized many people uh, being locked down. They are being sent to this kind of temporarily built hospitals. Very huge, very huge hospitals. So I have many students and uh, artists, colleagues, they are in that city, a huge city. And uh, I said, uh, since you're being locked down, why don't you just use your iPhone to, to help me to do recordings, just daily recordings. And uh, of course, I, at the beginning, I only think that is a rare opportunity because they, some of them are in the, in the hospital as a patient. And they don't know their fate. They don't know how the disease uh, is going to be developed. So I said, just start recording. You know, daily you don't have to. You just recording uh, one, like ten minutes or or five minutes, even just one minute. So many of them start to do recordings for me, and uh, they they start to send uh, the uh, footage through through Google. Uh, every night I I would view the the you know what they're sending to me. And the daily time I, I was directing uh, Toronto in Rome. So I have day and day job and night job. So I, I, I collect all the images, would tell them what is lacking. You know, we have to make it more professional and uh, trying to create storylines. Then come out as uh, by, by July, we already edited about uh, Corona. Um, in Wuhan. By then, the, the disease just being spread out in US and uh, Europe. It is like a very high. So we try to, we finish the editing. I try to send this to the festivals, Venice, Berlin, and other festivals, Toronto. They all think, um, amazing, how could you have those footage? You know, how do you make it? I said, that's easy, you know. I'm a filmmaker. I'm a virtual filmmaker. So, <laughs> and uh, it's a really beautiful film. They all shocked. We have this kind of footage about the pandemic, about China, about Wuhan. But uh, at the end, they all turned me down. They said, we cannot show it. 
And of course, I, I know why they cannot show it because the film market, 40% of investors are Chinese. They, they come to film festivals to the major buyers for the, for the film industry. They cannot be associated with topic like this. They, of course, they cannot, my name even cannot be mentioned to them. So that's the story. But uh, to, to make a film remotely today is very easy. You, know, you have very small equipment, you have uh, internet, and uh, editing is very easy. I take uh, my girlfriend's spend about one month like every night, just made the film. Brilliant. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Um, and I heard in 2015, that was the first time you showed a solo exhibition in China. And you did a show in, in Beijing. Can you talk a bit about how that came about? Like the realization that you were actually, you know, in spite of the government being kind of against you, you were actually able to still express yourself publicly and why that was important to do that in China? Well, I, 1993, I moved back to China uh, after 12 years in New York, I, the excuse is my father's in hospital. So before I left China, I said I will never go back. But after 12 years, 1993, I went back because my father's in hospital. So I didn't realize from then till I moved out 2015, that's 22 years. And uh, of course, so many things happened during these 22 years. But at the end, I was in detention and uh, for about five years, self-detention and detention. They, they don't let me go out for my exhibitions. My passport was taken away. So there's too many daily, constant struggle, uh, very dramatic sometimes. Uh, there's a film called uh, Never Sorry. If you'd like to know more, you can see that film uh, by Edison, uh, a young uh, filmmaker. Uh, so at the end, they said, you can have your passport, you can travel now. My first question is, can, as they said, you're free. I said, you know, what, what do you mean I'm free? As an artist, if I'm free, I, I can freely express myself. Otherwise, what do you mean I'm free? 
And uh, yes, this is what you want to do. I said, I want to do my art exhibition. But I never had that, uh, in that 22 years, I don't have that kind of need because China is under censorship. I don't want to show my works in some, some kind of censorship. But that before I uh, leave China to, to Germany, I said, I challenged them. I said, can I do art exhibition? They said, yes. Why not? So I did. They are great. I did. But uh, you know, the opening day, so many students come, thousands. But there's at least 200 undercover police in there. And uh, of course, they, you know, my work is not always appear to be political. So they they think, you know, with their education, they think that's fine. So I had my, I had my exhibition. It's really, uh, it's about a challenge. You know, it's not really, I want to have something to show people. It's just uh, to test if they give me, let me to show myself, so. And I heard, wasn't there like a, um, like a policeman or somebody involved that, that said, oh, please keep me posted on your, your other exhibitions because they liked it so much. I heard some, some story like that. Maybe not. <laughs> you don't remember. Okay. In your new book, your memoir, which I think is an extraordinary um, a body of writing, um, A Thousand Years of Joys and Sorrows, right at the beginning, there oh, is... It's a, nice. It's a, a cheaper version is going to come up. The paper cup come, yeah, next month. So don't buy this one. Oh, the paperback. Too yeah, yeah, expensive, yeah. you know. <laughs> exactly the same words in there. Same words, get the paperback. Yeah, maybe. Um, it's lighter as well, easier maybe to carry around. Maybe one third of the price, you know. <laughs> right, right at the beginning of the paperback uh, that's coming out is, is, is a poem that you've included by your father um, titled Yakoto, and it was written in 1980. And can you talk a bit about the influence of your childhood and like how art came into your life through your father's poetry, but also why you included that poem right at the start? <clears throat> I should say I never influenced by my father. My father is the number one poet in China. You know, everybody would agree his poetry being read by anybody from the kindergarten to prime minister. Today, they will still memorize all his very patriotic uh, poetry. But I'm not influenced. When I grew up, the, you know, 1957, he was... Um, uh, punished as a writer, so he was exiled for 20 years. So I grew up with him in very remote area, Xinjiang, and uh, he cannot write a, a line of poetry, it's, not for, it's forbidden. So he's doing hard labor such as clean the public toilets, a uh, heavy job for 200 people uh, in the very remote uh, area. So. I see him as an honest worker and uh, trying to do his job professionally. You know, it's impossible to do it professionally because people don't shit professionally. <laughs> uh, and uh, there's uh, such a variety of uh, uh, habit. And they don't have uh, toilet papers in those village. And they use all kinds of stuff to mess up with their bottom. And, uh, you know, the winter is 40 degrees below, below zero. The, 
immediately every day he was facing some kind of ice pagoda. He has to move it. You know, it's not easy job. In the summer, of course, it's a lot of liquid. Especially women's part is so much liquid, <laughs> and uh, and all kind of colors. So I have to. I was ten years old. I have to accompany him to see my classmate running out of the because he has to ask, is anybody there? Because no door there. So, you know, my classmate would run out laughing and he would walk in, I would follow him to see how he would accomplish the job. It's most difficult job. And he did such beautiful cleaning. Every day when he comes out, I just look like a, a minimalist work or, <laughs> you know, it's, it's so beautiful. He, he cut every corner very clearly put the dress sand on it, of course still flies because there's no, no tents or no, nothing there. But I learned everything from him, you know, how to dealing with this most insultful and uh, dehumanized and uh, most difficult work. And now museum asked me to do installations that are easy, you know. I can do easily 10 big museum shows a year, so because I always think about my father. You know, he did so many difficult works, and as the most proud man, as a poet, he studied in Paris, and you know, he has been in Guomindang jail, in communist exile, and he's still very, very open mind, very happy man, I should say, and uh, yeah. And, and the, the, the poem you included in your book oh, um, yeah. is related I never to sorry, the idea I never read his poetry. I sometimes I look through it, you know, it's really nice, you know, it's modern language in the, in the modern tradition. And the, the modern poetry, the problem with it, you cannot write, read it twice. You know, I prefer the classics, you can go back to reread it, because the modern poetry is more diluted, you know, the languages. It's just common language. It's, if you want to read the po modern poetry, just go to Twitter, you see people, their tweets is more, more modern than modern poetry, you know, so. And um, <laughs> Russell and I are often quite interested in the weird things that you do in the studio, say. So do you have like snacks that you eat? Like how do you relax? How do you sort of enjoy yourself um, so that, you know, you can actually uh, make the work and kind of free I, I, your mind up. I'm a very boring person. I, I don't have much relaxation method. I, I like to eat, but only Chinese food or Oriental type of food, because it's kind of soft and uh, a little bit prepared. And uh, I like to play cards, but very hard to find partner to play cards because you need a few people to play cards. So I have to go to a casino to play blackjack. So <laughs> if the dealer is you, then you For me, it's moment of focus, you know. It's really trying to do the impossible because uh, everything's designed. So I play blackjack whenever I can. Then the rest time I take a nap, you know. I like to take a nap on sofa, so I never really sit on sofa, but it's only good for me to take a nap, you know. And the cat's always uh, on me, you know, on my stomach or somewhere, you know. 
So it's that's that's all my, that's my life. So. So you show with some of the greatest galleries in the world, like Neugrimschneider in Germany and Listen Gallery in London. And are there other artists um, that you're a big fan of? Are there artists that you talk to, that you, you communicate with a lot? No, I, I, I didn't, because I may be falling in love with them, so I said that maybe, maybe I just don't get to know them. So. <laughs> so you prefer to be by yourself, more isolated? No, I, I have enough things to do, you know. <laughs> Let's go back. So when you first went to America in the 80s, and I, I heard that it had a huge impact on you, and um, the work of like Andy Warhol, for example, there's an amazing photograph of yourself next to his work, and also Allen Ginsberg. Can you talk a bit about how those kind of formative years had an impact on your development? Well, uh, first, I never developed, so I, <laughs> there's no development there, and uh, maybe I have been gradually realized, but it's not really a de development. And uh, so, but uh, of course I, when I was young, I, I, I deeply, uh, if, if someone I feel is strongly, I can agree with, it's uh, Michel Duchamp. You know, this is a, this French guy who like to play chess and his attitude and his way of doing art I can totally agree with. So he, he can be a, a, a influence me. And uh, Warhol is a fascinating character. He's uh, um, half century be before his time. He's the first person started to use uh, social media. That time it's no social media. He's doing newspaper, magazine, and uh, television, and uh, you know, doing a lot of uh, selfies or taking shots with anybody, do recording all the time. Nobody can even listen through how, what he had been recording. You know, it's too, too many. So his first person realized the life is meaningless. And uh, so I, I admire him, his honesty. And, uh, you know, and of course, there's many great artists in, in, in America because I, I, I spent 12 years there. And they all somehow influenced me. And I was really struck by the way that your own persona is so much part of the work in a way. And like, um, if you mention Ai Weiwei to people, they would often think of that portrait of you where you're kind of almost suggesting people should wake up or, you know, uh, using body language and things like that. Is photography something that you've deliberately employed as a way to kind of think about persona? Well, not, well, you you mean you sound like I always have a purpose. I don't have a purpose. I'm a person. I use photography because I have a short memory. I think that need to be remembered. But I cannot remember those things. So I, I took a lot of shots, and I only say says if one day I'm hit by a car or bicycle, I was sitting in the wheelchair, I can look through what happened before, you know, I have plenty of time. So uh, most likely I will never even have a chance to see what uh, kind of photography I have been taking before. So. And your most famous photograph is the one where you're holding the um, Hand Dynasty uh, vase and you're dropping it and it smashes on the floor. But I heard that was actually like you tried twice, so you actually had to photograph it twice <laughs> and break two vases, not one. 
Uh, that was 1994, I come back to China. I know I have nothing to do. I don't like whatever happened in China. You know, they built a very big road and a big city. And, uh, you know, because I come back from New York, I'm kind of arrogant to see, oh, that's far behind. So I never really enjoyed China's development till today. I still not, I'm very deeply impressed, you know, how they made China change so fast. But that time I started to spend about six years collecting antique. And uh, you know, that's something I realized growing up in Chairman Mao's uh, cultural revolution, we miss that part. We, don't, we, we criticize whatever is old, uh, belong to this kind of old society, need to be destroyed. So I started to buy things. And uh, by the 90s, you have a golden time, China digging out a lot of uh, things because everywhere they are building buildings or f build a railroad, so many things being recovered from underground. So I bought many things. It's not expensive. And uh, one day, you know, it's sometimes the main character of my life is I always feel bored. And uh, so I tell my brother, I said, uh, you know, I have a camera, a Nikon camera, so it, it can take uh, six frames in a second. So let's try this one. So I hold the vest and I drop it, and he's supposed to push the button. <laughs> then I realize he somehow doesn't believe it, so he missed it, but the vest already broken. So try to convince him and said, let's do the second one. And the second, because that time you cannot prove it because the film is, is still using film. You, you have to develop it. But I, my experience with camera, I know he doesn't get it. <laughs> so we did the second one. So I, I, but years later, I developed it because many years later, I started to have exhibitions I realized I don't have work for like a 10, 10 years period of time. So it's not convincing. Some museum asks you to have a show. You see that 10 years I was taking a nap or something. <laughs> so I try to look through my photographs, develop some, you know, and I did develop three only because that can cover those kind of museum walls because they, they're very big. The museum today, they, they make the wall very big. So. So then that's been misinterpreted as some kind of icon image, which is okay. You know, I'm living on, uh, under this kind of misunderstanding, which benefited so much, you know. <laughs> and you've even recreated it in Lego. Oh, yes. And that time I asked my galleryist, I said, how many should I print? They said, maybe six. I said, ah, that's, that's, that's bad, you know, Warhol already prints his print 250, but I, I was not famous, so I printed six, immediately six disappeared. Then I said, what's going on, you know, if people still asking it. <laughs> yeah, it became so, so popular. Yeah, the Lego saved my life, so I, yeah, so I, I made Legos, so. Yeah. Um, we ask every guest two questions on, on the episode. The first one is, if you could do an imaginary art heist and take home any artwork from anywhere in the world, and we will help you, we can give you like cranes or uh, any kind of trucks or anything you need, um, what artwork would you take home? I don't have a home. 
<laughs> Good answer. Um, I actually wanted to ask you that question, though, about home. What, 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 what is home for you now? Well, uh, you asked the wrong person to answer you. <laughs> I was wondering, though, if it was with your... Like, is, can home be something more, like, psychological? Like, with your son or, you know, with your direct family? Can home mean that to you? Do you know I what think I mean? that's home. It's like you ask a tree about what the roots look like. And uh, I think home... Certainly, it's not uh, what appeared when we look at the trees because it's underground. And uh, I think it relates to security, safety, and some kind of thing you feel you belong to. But that, those things never really happen in my life. And the final question is, uh, what is your favorite color? <laughs> uh, well, I'm colorblind. <laughs> I think you, I like your uh, green shirts, you know. <laughs> it looks really nice. I'm not sure I believe you, because I said I really like your blue, your blue my, jacket. My purple jacket? Your purple jacket, okay. Uh-huh. okay. Um, what is the best advice you've ever received? Or what advice would you give to younger artists coming up now or emerging artists? Uh, stay young, don't get older. <laughs> Stay young, don't get older. That's brilliant advice. We all need that. Ai Weiwei, thank you so much. It has been such a privilege to meet you. And for everyone listening, you can follow Ai Weiwei at Ai Weiwei on Instagram. And we'll be posting pictures of his work on our Instagram at TalkUp. Thank you, Kite Festival. Enjoy the day, enjoy the weekend. We love you, Ai Weiwei. Thank you. You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamond and Russell Tovey. Follow us on Instagram at Talk Art, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in today's episode, with music by Jack Northover. Subscribe to Talk Art at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and write us a comment. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.